welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me today, of course, I have fantastic guests. Uh, we got Manu, co-founder of Novik here, uh, making his comeback. Tammy Levy, Chief Games Officer at Captain TV, and David Kay, President of Snapshot Games. And Manu's coming back with a little bit of a surprise. Yeah. What, you got? <laughs> what, what did you have cooking there, Manu? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I guess the cooking is done. So, uh, but yeah, last time I was on the podcast, uh, I, I mentioned that, you know, there's a baby on the way. So in the meantime, uh, the baby is now here. Uh, tomorrow, she'll actually be turning seven months. Uh, or uh, Sorry, not seven months, uh, two months or uh, eight weeks. Um, and uh, yeah, her name is uh, Emma, Emma Scarlett Kumar. Um, there's a long backstory about, you know, why like the two names, Emma and Scarlett. <laughs> Maybe I can explain that over a beer with, <laughs> with people, but... Um, we expect an article on it. Yeah, like a full deep dive. Yep. It's a it's a lore lore of Manny's yeah. uh, baby, yeah, the, the child decon. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you know it's uh, it's been great. Like everything has basically changed uh, since she arrived, and um, it's my like uh, fourth week after paternity leave. But I'm still trying to find the balance between you know a new balance between work and life, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the one 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 positive thing is, you know, uh, with her around, um, it's actually so much easier to put a hard stop to work now. <laughs> so, <laughs> otherwise, you know, someone I, else to blame it on. Yeah, I just start feeling guilty. You know, she's she's there and she's smiling, and I'm just like not there to like you know see it or uh, keep uh, making her smile. So you know, it's uh, it's great. It's it's absolutely great feeling. Awesome. Well, congratulations, of course, and, and welcome back. Yeah, thank you. We've got uh, we got some great topics today. Of course, uh, lots of exciting things always happening, especially in the world of earnings. Uh, we got some stuff on Sega and Rovio continuing to to talk about their strategy. Playtika and Stillfront put out their earnings, which should be interesting. Uh, Pokemon's Pokemon Go and and some revenue debacle maybe going on with that. And uh, Sony and Microsoft and their kind of competitive state of things. Uh, so let's just get kicked off with uh, Sega and Rovio and what they've been talking about. Yeah, this is this is like more of a quick update. Um, you know, um, after the whole deal uh, went through, and yeah, a lot of uh, I guess most of the industry was also surprised with you know, oh, Sega actually like went ahead and purchased Rovio. Um, I guess uh, you know, uh, just to kind of like uh, kind of recap what what actually happened over there, or like why the deal you know makes sense, um, at least from their perspectives. Um, I mean, Sega basically needs like a mobile business, you know, uh, I think um, their entire mobile business about like 80, 85% of their revenues are all coming from Japan. So there's a huge opportunity for them to, you know, make it a more international mobile business and Rovio can kind of bring that to the table. So it's pretty clear in terms of, you know, uh, why this deal makes sense for Sega. Um, Rovio, on the other hand, you know, um, I mean, they... They have like a stable business, you know, we kind of discussed it on uh, previous podcasts. Um, 
And I mean, sure, they lean pretty heavily on this one IP, uh, Angry Birds, but it's a stable business. It keeps growing. It generates the cash that they need and uh, it's there. But Rovio wants more than that, you know, um, more and probably even more than just a games as a service business and, you know, leaning more in the direction of, you know, cross-platform and transmedia. And... <clears throat> And Sega kind of brings those IPs uh, to the equation that, you know, potentially Rovio could leverage. Um, plus, like, uh, these other business opportunities, you know, um, like the, the uh, you know, Sega Sammy as an entity kind of, you know, with the resorts and the toy business and, you know, things like that. Like, a lot of that stuff uh, is uh, are things that we've also seen kind of Rovio explore in the past. And, you know, those, um, so they kind of meet on these points. Um, but I guess, yeah, most importantly, like for me, it felt more like a like a real good like culture deal because um, it's also pretty clear, like uh, something interesting that I found was or that I learned was uh, Sega actually started their conversations with Rovio in June of last year, which is actually much before Playtika made the bid. So it's it's actually possible like word got out and then and then Playtika made the bid. And I think most of the industry thinks that Playtika started the whole uh bidding uh or like the whole conversation about acquisition for Rovio. But but yeah, the reason I say like it's it's kind of a culture deal is because you know this conversation actually started that early. And um and yeah, both businesses kind of think about they more think about like building games as a craft um, rather than, you know, maybe a more platica mindset of, okay, you know, the game is a product and then we're just going to like juice the lemon, uh, like, you know, squeeze the lemon uh, as much as possible uh, for the longest period of time. Um, but yeah, I guess for like my one question with the whole thing was, you know, um, it's pretty clear, like, you know, it's a good deal for Sega uh, as we, as I kind of touched, touched upon earlier. but it's a little cloudy to me whether like it is is it like really a good deal for Rovio at the end of the day because that feels like more on uh, that feels like more dependent on these hopes and you know dreams of okay we're gonna like reutilize Sega's IPs and make something you know we're gonna grow uh, go cross platform we're we're gonna like you know explore a transmedia strategy and then there's the whole question about like you know. Uh, Happen uh, having like Japanese uh, overlords now, basically, and there are there are people who are who have said like you know good and bad things about working with you know uh, just like you know that culture of working with a Japanese uh, entity. So I wanted to kind of get your guys' take, you know, more from the Rovio side. Like, do you, do you guys think it's also a good deal for Rovio? And like, do you have do you have any insight on like how it is to kind of work with you know? Um, Japanese companies and teams and whether that will work for for Rovio. That's that, that's a that's an interesting question and I think I'll, I I could jump in just um my my quick take is you know, of all the potential acquirers for Rovio like there's very like there's a handful of acquirers and as you mentioned a lot of them are very very focused on much more you know, min-maxing the the live ops free-to-play game versus Rovio that has taken a lot more of the craft approach and not necessarily like min-max every single way, like the unit economics of everything. So from that point of view, you know, if they needed an exit strategy, if they were looking for a acquirer 
it makes sense to have, you know, a company that A, doesn't have quite the mobile expertise and B, um, will kind of align on those those development philosophies because they don't have the mobile expertise. So they're not coming with, you know, preconceived notions of what, how they should be optimizing their business. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there is kind of like that interesting piece on how is it going to play out long term if Sega is actually looking at Rovio for Rovio to take the lead on their mobile strategy? Or are they going to, you know, struggle with understanding mobile, the mobile space and the mobile economics? Uh, and of course, there's also another piece to it, which is the the cultural piece, as you mentioned. So I think that um, I hadn't thought about the, the cultural piece as much because we're seeing like so many you know international basically mergers at this point yeah where it feels like a much more global um uh, just way of of operating games than than ever ever before mm -hmm. uh but i think it is it is also something to to just watch out for and see you know how how do they integrate long term yeah Maybe maybe to like focus my question a bit, and I don't know. Maybe maybe David has like an opinion on this. Um, like, I mean, like Rovio has you know the Angry Birds IP, and you know it's uh, and Sega have like you know they can they have all the experience with the with the toy business and the and the resorts and the arcade machines and whatnot, and all of that stuff is probably easier for you know Rovio to plug into uh, with their IP. But when from Rovio's angle, if one of the key um, if one of the key selling points of uh, kind of getting acquired by Sega was Sega's IP and like working on that IP to convert it into, you know, mobile titles or or whatever. Um, like how, I just don't know, you know, like how do like, how do, how do the Japanese entities think about like, you know, or like how, how protective are they about, you know, the sanctity of, of their IP, like keeping that sanctity, uh, you know, when um, yeah, other teams are kind of creating uh, games uh, on top of those IPs. So, uh, okay, so there's, I guess two questions there. One is kind of, which is, which way is this flowing more, right? Is this more about, because it's, it's actually pretty easy to see. There's, a, there's some compatibility, I think, between, mm you know, uh, Sega's success taking Sonic and moving it into, um, you know, other areas. They've, they've been reasonably successful with that. And Rovio, actually, you know, I think the Angry Birds movie, from what I recall, was not incredibly well-reviewed, but I, it certainly performed quite well, I think. Um, and so you're right. It's, it's actually pretty easy to see how there could be quite a nice opportunity for Sega to take a, take the Angry Birds IP and do all sorts of things with it. Um, yeah. I, I can't, as far as the, uh, you know, what they will be allowing um, uh, Rovio to do with, with Sonic, um, I, traditionally, historically, you know, I would say Japanese companies are, have, are not sort of have not been known for being uh, incredibly um, kind of easy to work with from that, from, from that perspective. Mm. I will say that, you know, Sega, has I, I know a little bit about the relationship between Sega Japan and Sega Europe. So you know, Sega Europe is a really effectively a, a, a publisher, uh, 
quite focused on strategy titles, you know, so they've t- t- the creative assembly is their big, mm-hmm. big studio, their total war and so forth. And, um, they're, um, uh, from what I understand, like they are, uh, maybe this isn't apples to apples because they're, they're kind of work. They're not really working much with Sega's IP. So maybe it's a different question, but mm. they've been given quite a long, um, leash. And the reason frankly has been, um, they have performed, yeah, they've, 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 they've been quite a significant contributor to Sega's profit margins. Actually, um, Sega has, you know, multiple lines of business, but the, uh, software is by far the most, you know, has, has by far the best margins. Mm. So, you know, there is a sense to which if they, you know, they're paying a decent, decent price for this business. Um, they're going to, I, I think I would imagine they are going to give them some latitude because otherwise, you know, why are you spending the money in the first place? But mm-hmm. I'm speculating. I don't have any real insight, insight, insight here. No, that that that's good context anyway. I've just, um, I mean, I've just never been exposed to you know that uh, Japanese uh, developer ecosystem or just the mindset of kind of working uh, with companies there. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's good insight, regardless. Uh, I, that's pretty much what I've heard also, right? Like, um, yeah, there's uh, some level of inflexibility <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the, you know, with the IPs and kind of uh, letting go of them a little bit <laughs> when other people are developing games uh, on based on those IPs. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering on the reverse side of that too. Like, if Angry, like if, if Rovio's been just stuck with Angry Birds as their IP for so long, and I mean Sega kind of is not stuck with Sonic, but obviously has Sonic as like a pretty iconic one. Um, like is Sega then maybe able to help Rovio launch a new IP to be able to expand out a bit? Because of course Sega has its own audience. Um, they can maybe help for penetration in Japan, which of course is a very mobile first uh, like demographic in a lot of ways. So I do wonder if that could be a big help for Rovio to be like, Hey, we want to expand outside of Angry Birds. Finally, maybe now we have some leverage in support to do so. Like, is this, is this an opportunity for them to do that rather than just being like, let's just both sit on our existing IP? Yeah, no, I, I, that that's kind of like where I was coming from with, um, you know, my point about um, one of the reasons why this would also make sense, this deal would make sense for Rovio because, uh, yeah, it basically uh, gives Rovio access now to Sega's IPs, right? Um, Sonic being one of them. I mean, there's Total War, there's Persona, you know, like there are like quite, quite quite a few um so yeah i mean that's definitely an opportunity um it's just now it'll just be a question about you know like how these two entities actually work together because i mean those ips are also ips they've reached ip status because you know there has been some sanctity kind of (laughs) kept intact uh for you know all the games that have been built on those ips and um and yeah pretty sure they don't want to lose that and uh and yeah, it will be a new equation, you know, new working relationship with Rofio. And we'll just, I guess we'll just have to see uh, how it goes. Yeah. I think we'll definitely be keeping an eye on both of them, right? Yeah. Uh, as, as always. But I think it's a, it's a good opportunity. And I think a synergy that both teams were happy with from what I heard. So I think that overall is positive because we definitely see some more hostile M&As happening. And, and so this is nice to see one where everyone's happy. <laughs> and that may be the Playtika thing. It's best that that didn't work out. Yeah. So it's good. But uh, speaking of companies that like to do uh, acquisitions and play Tika themselves, uh, we've got some interesting earnings uh, reports that came out. 
Uh, yes, and and by interesting, I would say boring earnings. <laughs> so yeah, we had we had a, a couple of earnings reports go out last week. One was Playtica, the other one was Steelfront. Uh, both of them pretty boring, stable kind of quarter. Also, especially on the Playtica side, very much in line with the their forecast and guidance for the year, uh, which you know it's good news that. Q1 is in line with their um, forecast because otherwise it, it would be like real, real trouble. Uh, so I'll go through it fairly quickly just to, to give everyone kind of just an update on where these two companies are at and, in, in, you know, both of them being very much portfolio driven through acquisitions. Uh, I don't think there's a ton to discuss here, but um, I'll just highlight kind of the, the key points. So on the Playtica side, a uh, very stable quarter. Uh, one of their keynotes in their earnings was was it just made me laugh because uh, basically the the takeaway for me was like, oh, live ops work, cool, because uh, <laughs> they saw you know strong results from content packs and promotional features around events like the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day celebrations. I was like, cool. What is the and, and AI? Did, did you see the AI note? Oh uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. That was a, the next note I was yeah. I was gonna make is uh, that that's the other interesting point that uh, they highlighted was uh, that for their Bingo Blitz game, mm. they've started to use AI, and it's it's funny because they kind of underplayed it. It was just like a, a little note in there uh, where you know they were calling out that they used AI to help identify new segments of of players, um, kind of potential top players earlier in their journey to, you know, make sure you retain and, and convert them early on and they're seeing an uplift off of those efforts. Um, so I thought what was what was very interesting out of that is, you know, are we going to start seeing more and more AI callouts in these earnings reports and how do that, how, how do those influence how I have, a, I, I, have, I have an opinion on this. <laughs> yes, go, the answer go is for it. The rest, the, is, answer, the rest is boring. <laughs> the answer is, can I swear on this podcast? I forget. Yes, you can. <laughs> All right. Well, the answer is fuck yes. Yes. This is, I don't know if, are you guys, are you guys watching, are you guys watching Succession? Anyone, anyone else watching Succession at the moment? No. Oh. All right. Well, I'm, we're going to have some <laughs> listeners who are. So, for apologies to to my fellow hosts, but um, this is a very much like a, this is a very much a living plus moment. Um, this is they're going to start hearing a lot of mentions of this in um, in earnings calls. This is this is definitely like, like how it happened with blockchain. More. You know, like a year back, right? right? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, big shoes, big shoes. Big, you got to pay lip shoes. service to whatever the buzzword so, is, right? Otherwise, yeah. no one pays attention to your earnings calls. But honestly, man, like, and I, uh, and, and honestly, yeah. go for it, man. You sorry. No, I just want to say, like, but honestly, like, I feel like the mood around AI is just so much more productive versus, like, you know, the mood around the web right. three stuff. Who's pushing back? Oh no, it's bad for the environment or whatever <laughs> other excuse, right? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, when Platika said, you know, like, okay, they are using AI, but you know, then they kind of also attached it to like the like the personalization aspect of it. Uh, that was still interesting, you know, and like that does feel like something tangible, like, you know, like other teams could potentially replicate. But 
But yeah, also like Politica does have the resources to invest in that versus other teams. Well, anyway. Now everyone has to say they're doing it though, although it'll look like they're slacking. Yeah, ex- yeah, especially the public companies. But yeah, anyway, Tammy, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that's what I was going to say. It, it just feels like much more tangible and it feels much more impactful. Mm. And, you know, you can, even with that small note that they made around AI to help identify players, like that is something that, you know, a lot of companies have been doing with data and it really is just the evolution of, how we use data for live ops from, you know, just collecting data to reacting to that data. There's been a lot of like machine learning um, prototypes and platforms that have tried to precisely do this, like identify players and segment them earlier and earlier. Mm -hmm. So none of this is new. Uh, And I think that's probably why it was kind of underplayed a little bit. And they, you know, before would have been like, oh, our optimization processes, da, 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 da. And now it was like they put like the AI label on it. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, for additional optimizations and for, you know, teams trying to leverage AI in, in different ways and not necessarily just like, you know, player journeys, et cetera. And like basically like machine learning evolution uh, of what we've already been doing. But, you know, when you're starting to talk about, you know, seeing lines maybe of like, hey, cost reduction uh you know we we improved our operational costs because we've been able to automate x y and c through ai that means you know we need we can have a smaller team doing live ops for this this game i think that's where you know it's going to start being less of a a small note and a lot more of you know the the bigger news on on ai yeah, probably like one of the well, reasons it was also a small note mm-hmm. was uh, because, you know, um, I mean, it was only attached to Bingo Blitz. And I said, uh, I think they said like uh, it was something like a 2.5, 3% increase in revenue uh, attributed to that. Um, I kind of hope like all of it is like because of the personalization, uh, you know, <laughs> efforts because um, I mean, personalization as a topic in 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 game development has also kind of been around forever right but it's it never has taken you know it's like major root in in operations for anybody and i hope like that 3% kind of you know moves to like even a 30% <laughs> you know over the course of uh, the next couple of years um yeah because you yeah, I mean that 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 would make it like really more than a footnote, um, you know, uh, in in their reports and and yeah, I, I I would personally just love to see like you know personalization systems kind of um, you know just grow more of a foot, foothold uh, in the industry, especially also in this post IDFA context when you basically are flying blind on the acquisition side of things, but once they're in, then you can you know personalize and you know, uh, kind of move that 3% to a 30%, hopefully. But, yeah. Just as a, as a qu- follow-up question on the on the earnings then, uh, I wanted to find out if you think uh, Playtika suspending doing new games was like a, a, the right move given what their earnings look like now. Uh, I think, I mean, I think it is the right short-term move. Like, my, my take is it's the right short-term move because they're uh, stabilizing the company, stabilizing the revenue, being able to stabilize their costs. At the same time, the question is what comes next, right? Like they're they're gonna want to see growth. 
they're going to need to show growth. So where is that growth going to come from? Are they not confident that their existing teams can deliver on new games? Uh, then are they just kind of going to double down on the on the acquisition strategy that has worked out for you know for them and for a lot of other uh, of these companies that have become aggregators of of a lot of game studios? So I think it's short term. The answer is probably yes, but we'll see how it pans out if if they can't secure additional growth via you know new games, not right now additional acquisitions and like who's what are the companies that you know would be open for uh being acquired by Playtica and that Playtica can actually you know secure I I, I don't think like Rovio gave Playtica a good look anymore now so <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I really don't know like what's going to happen but um but yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of my question too. Like, you know, where does Playtica really go from here? Because sure, like, you know, it's all like, I mean, yeah, maybe they're like building a, you know, building stability right now in, in this post-IDFA uh, climate. But I mean, it's also like maybe a little bit too stable. And, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's not really going anywhere. Um, and yeah, it, yeah, at least for and, me, it just comes down the- to the new games. So. Yeah. yeah, and then on the acquisition side, I mean, you you kind of mentioned it as as a, a little joke of like Rovio didn't give them a good look, but honestly, like part of it is they are they have been really good operators in terms of you know reducing costs and being very aggressive about canceling projects, closing yeah. unprofitable studios or studios that you know moving operations to places where they could be more profitable. But they're like ruthless operators in that way. So as a as a team and as a as a game studio that might be approached by Playtica, if you're not amiable to that, you're gonna you're you're not gonna even open the the conversation with them because you know what's you know what it looks like to be acquired by Playtica. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was yeah, definitely like half joking because there are there are enough number of teams also out there who like the way Playtica operates and you know it would be a great fit um yeah it's not maybe not about always about the craft for all game developers uh, <laughs> I mean you make it sound like if uh, if you're just having trouble firing people just get acquired by Playtica and they'll do it for you <laughs> I didn't say we that. need to cut costs but we're, we're too Damn nice so let's just have Playtica <laughs> bring in the axe guys uh yeah, and and speaking of of acquisitions and aggregators, we can jump into the next one uh, for the <laughs> earnings reports. See, I'm learning. I'm learning on the transitions here from nice. from Devin. Uh, so yeah, the the other one that came out was Steelfront. Uh, similarly, nothing controversial or unexpected takeaways. You know, no new acquisitions, no new game launches. They continue to have a huge portfolio of games. Uh, global games, I think it's north of 70 at this point, even with the ones that they've shut down um, in the past few quarters. Their revenue is has been steady. Uh, again, uh, I, it, it's good to see that Q1 is like in line with our expectations because otherwise things would be uh, rough overall. Um, strongest part of their business right now is their... 4x strategy games and not on mobile um so their line of the supremacy games uh empire from from the good game studio they did see uh and this was kind of like the one interesting note also that that i took away from it 
uh, users decline in their casual uh, bucket of games. Um, so they bucket their games in three groups, uh, strategy, simulation, and action, simulation, action, and RPG, and then uh, casual and mashup. For their casual um, bucket, that's where they saw DAU and MAU decline. Uh, and I kind of looked into it a little bit and was reading up a little bit on what, what drove that. Um, and basically, the the news is actually from Q4 uh, of last year, and they're just seeing the effects right now in Q1, where uh, one of their offices uh, in Bangladesh, their Bangladesh office, uh, the studio was called Alka Games, which was part of Moonfrog, which makes uh, poker in Rummy, and um, I forget they have another uh, like multi-game game. Uh, so this studio, Alka Games, published the adaptations of uh, the poker and Rummy game in Bangladesh, um, kind of a localized version, and uh, Bangladesh came in with very restrictive measures and very targeted uh, towards still front where they expanded their definition of online illegal online gambling to just virtual chips. Uh, so they basically came after, you know, came after them. Um, still front decided to close down operations just to, you know, not have to deal with these like very, tight and, and strict regulations that were, you know, really being targeted, you know, across the board, but, you know, they got targeted here as well. Um, so shutting down those operations in the game did not have a material impact on their revenue. It was more of like a DAU and MAU basis uh, where they saw kind of that impact them. So that, I thought that was uh, kind of an interesting just effect of, you know, decision to close the, the, the studio at the end of last year, they're seeing kind of that effect on their user base, their global user base, you know, going into this year. Um, I guess outside of that, yeah, it's it's steady as it goes. Uh, I found it very interesting their how they're grouping their games, but that's just me. I was like, man, your casual simulation mashup. Sounds like you're just like putting games together so that you can say like these buckets are all like relatively stable and like they cancel each other out when they're like up and down versus like an actual like something that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> but that was, that was just like an interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was like interesting. I was like, how is uh, a Hollywood star, Big Farm Mobile, Harvest, and I think like another more midcore game all fall into like simulation action RPG and then. Uh, the Property Brothers trivia, poker and rummy, etc., fall under casual mashup. And uh, how are they not in different groupings? But I mean, anyway. it's all about like that pub public, <laughs> like what what narrative is going to like you know uh, yep. may, uh, yeah. keep the public markets happy. But um, <clears throat> yeah, and it sounded very much like a like a, I was like, oh yeah, they're they're want to say like they're aggregating games in in a way that makes each bucket look you know yeah. relatively stable uh but yeah i don't know if you guys uh have any other thoughts around uh steel front the steel front in general and like their current strategy it sounds like you know they're they're steady as it goes in terms of their strategy and um you know their performance right now 
Actually, the thing that surprised me the most is um, they're not like for maybe like for the past couple of quarters or yeah, maybe past couple of quarters, um, they aren't executing on their on the on their fundamental strategy or the strategy that they actually started with, which is you know uh, kind of being this roll up entity, uh, acquire like this you know <clears throat> bunch of studios, um, and then. Um, and then like figure out like organic growth uh, from that but don't but not stop with the acquisitions i think that like they used to be on a rate of like one acquisition a quarter and those used to be entire studios then it went to um just acquiring individual games and then the pace also re- uh, like you know reduced it was no more once a quarter and i don't think they have done an acquisition for like the past couple of quarters so like their foundational strategy is, you know, basically in question. And, you know, they had this, um, they do this capital markets day where they kind of go, they go pretty deep into, you know, basically being like super reflective on the company and trying to be as transparent as possible to, uh, you know, the public markets about operations and how they're thinking about portfolios and things like that. And they had this one slide where they were basically saying that, you know, uh, Stillfront is kind of in its fourth phase uh, of, um, you know, of um, of its life. Uh, so the first phase was the entrepreneurial phase, which is where they kind of like set the foundation and like these four companies came together to form Stillfront. Uh, then it was the structure phase, which is where they kind of did their, you know, initial set of acquisitions to lay that foundation. <clears throat> then it was the scale phase, which is when that like acquisition resulting in like, you know, inorganic growth flywheel was kind of spinning and, you know, they kind of got their scale. And now it's entering the synergy phase, um, which is probably the most questionable phase, right? Because now you ha- just have like, you know, you have like all these studios um, and they have like the still ops platform, which is kind of the, you know, the the meeting place for all these studios. And like it has all, it's basically like Playtika's boost platform in a way, <clears throat> maybe even more expanded uh, from that. And, and yeah, and so they stopped acquisition. So there's no inorganic growth happening. And now they're in the synergy phase, which means there is like a lot of pressure for just organic growth uh, at, at Stillfront. And the story is kind of similar to Playtika, where, you know, it's essentially going to be about, okay, so now you have all these studios, where are the new games, you know? <laughs> and is it going to be like, you know, uh, sequels to their already existing IPs? Are they going? Are these teams going to build new IPs? And, you know, and then... You know, and then how will they like perform live ops on their existing portfolio itself? And like on that point, one last note, but <clears throat> I, th- I feel like that dropping DAU's problem is actually a portfolio wide issue. I'm not like, I mean, maybe the Bangladesh have actually contributed to it a bit, but their entire portfolio is also like pretty old, right? And, um, and yeah, it's just like a portfolio wide issue, which is why then you see like the ARPDAO is also kind of skyrocketing um, in in their in their earnings report. So, so yeah, live ops, you know, they 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 have kind of need to focus on that. And then new games is like again the huge question: can <laughs> Stillfront kind of deliver on new gaming experiences? But you know, I have I have strong opinions about aggregator parent companies. Uh, and being able to show organic growth, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's it's incredibly hard, and it's a strategy that's almost set out to fail mm. uh, because they're first of all they're public companies, 
Second, they have in the market, in the open market, they have shown these very like step function growth kind of faces, right? Especially if you're a good, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing smart acquisitions, you're going after profitable companies as well. So you're kind of like just aggregating revenue and profit and seeing like these, like this accelerated growth every time you do an acquisition. Um, and you're not positioned to wait for the part that is hard about making games, which is making good games. And that takes time and that takes failure and that takes investment. And these aggregators are not staffed at the leadership level to be able to stomach that. Um, so I think it's, I, I'm not sure how it's going to go down for, for any of these companies, but um, I'm, I'm very skeptical that that's going to be a good long-term strategy for any of these uh, aggregators and, and massive acquirers that now have like this collection of, of aging games, as you said, Manu. Um, and the other piece is the, the centralization of tools. It's also very, very hard. I'm also very skeptical about like the whole synergistic uh, piece of it of like, hey, let's make this analytics platform or this da 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 platform that just like helps all our portfolio companies. Why? Because you're acquiring live games that already have their tools and operations dialed in in most like most of the times. So for the teams that you're asking to deliver in revenue, deliver on profit. Asking them to integrate something new, it's more costly costly than it's worth. So yeah, uh, I think that those. The, I'm very very skeptical of the, of the future in terms of growth. In in, in we kind uh, we kind of saw that the, like an example yeah. of that is you know when uh, Playtica uh, acquired Reworks um, and they got the Redecor game. So Redecor basically then had to like plug into Playtica's Boost platform right at that point, but. I mean, I, I can't say for sure, like, okay, plugging into the blue, uh, plugging, plugging into the boost uh, platform is the reason that, you know, Redecor has been seeing declining revenues ever since that acquisition happened. But it, I like, I think it would also, uh, you know, be a little bit foolish to assume that it's not part of the reason. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's probably a little, yeah, it's, it's probably some part of it. Uh, so. I don't know, uh, David. Like, um, can you can you even speak to this at all? Like with snapshot and everything, but uh... I can speak in general terms. Yeah, um, uh, I'm so snapshot was acquired by Embracer, so uh, that's that's I suppose was what's going what's behind the question. Uh, I think it's. I think Tammy makes a lot of good points. I think it's worth differentiating between trying to the sort of operational integration that she's describing, which I agree is very difficult. Like, oh, take this live, ga live game and instead of using these tools that you've built over a period of years, you know, integrate with this. I think um, it's more of an open question if you look at a company like Embracer, which is acquiring quite a diverse set of assets across, mm. you know, a number of different areas. So in the case of Embracer, that's, you know, PC, console, mobile, it's tabletop games. Um, it's 
actual IP, like these, you know, like Lord of the Rings comics, exactly. And, you know, we've just been talking about the Rovio and, you know, the opportunities for, you know, Rovio and Sega. Um, I think it's a little easier to see areas where you can leverage IP and from one context and another. Certainly not that it, you know, remains to be seen exactly how successful companies like Embracer will be. Um, but, yeah, there, there is certainly a lot of focus on it at the executive level at these companies. So uh, I, I, w- I would say that I'm a little bit more optimistic in that kind of more loosely coupled collaboration, uh, operational integration than the very specific, very targeted kind that I, I agree is a bit like trying to kind of change out a plane's engine during, you know, flight or something, which is just really tough. Mm-hmm. I guess I wonder what what do you do if you're a company like Stillfront or Embracer that has a, a one of the companies you've acquired and you're trying to, sh- to shift them over to your tools or your process um, or whatever you know make them more part of the synergy and they just don't happen to fit like culture wise or like personnel does does want to cooperate or it just doesn't mesh up like do you do you just dismantle well, them do you just be like well, no, do it anyways. I mean, the, the- the, no, I mean the, the the answer is you, you can't. This it sort of has to be bottom up as much as possible. So, you know, in the again, without speaking too much to the specifics, there is a very clear sort of the the leadership at all of the different you know across the different studios across the different entities all has an under, have an understanding and a, a kind of a remit to hey let's where it makes sense. Uh, let's look for opportunities to work together, right? Um, but you can't impose this in a top-down way, I don't think. Uh, or at least you, if you if you try, I think you're likely to you're likely to fail. Yeah, and like again, like from history, that's so true. Like I think Zynga kind of faced that quite a bit, like with their you know central central PM function, central intelligence platforms, etc. And if it was like kind of forced on the throats of their uh, you know their acquired entities, it, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. Uh, and the same also happened with EA, right? And um, so yeah, totally agree with David's point about you know as bottoms up as possible and just kind of more approach it with a flexible mindset versus you know. This is the still ops platform. You are part of still front. Now you have to plug in, you know, figure it out. So, uh, yeah. Well, in, uh, in terms of growth, we actually have uh, a company that did manage to raise some funding uh, recently, a company called Trees Please. Uh, raised a little bit. Yeah. Um, this, uh, so it's not like the largest funding round. So uh, they raised like 8 million. But uh, the reason I want to talk about uh, this company is because it's part of the yeah, maybe small, but uh, interesting green gaming. Uh, that's how I call it. I don't know if that's like the, that's the, that's the official industry term, but this green gaming movement where, you know, uh, Trees Please uh, is a UK based uh, game developer that is essentially building games that can actually have, that can actually like help reverse climate change. So there's, you know, some actual positive, tangible impact to the world um, apart from, you know, um, generating maximum dopamine rushes uh, for for people. But (laughs) there's actual, like, positive impact. Um, And, and yeah, like I said, they didn't, like, raise the largest round. But I wanted to kind of bring it up because um, it's also, like, one of... 
even though like there have been like a lot of these green gaming companies with all all kinds of you know value propositions out there this is probably one of the companies that's also received maybe the most significant funding round yet um and you know they have they have like a you know a typical merge game um but you know the the narrative is like super educative about you know uh, climate change and like various topics around it uh the business model is basically there's a percentage of iip profits that are kind of going to you know their uh, tree planting partner um i forget the name of that uh, partner but um but yeah pe- people have to like you know they do the merge game they merge the things they get like these tree tokens and then once you um either through like pure engagement you collect enough of tree tokens to uh let trees please know that okay you know go plant a tree or you make an ip purchase and there's a per- percentage of that profit kind of going as a donation directly to you know the the tree tree planting partner and trees are planted um they've they've been active or i think the company was founded in 2019 and um i think the game has been like in soft launch for a little bit over a year but until now they have planted half a million trees already which is like significant um and that's happened um that's happened with like a donation uh, amount between like 10 to 50k so according to according to data.ai you know they've made about like 200 to 300k in 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 uh, in in net revenue and uh, it yeah it would basically calculate to about 5 to 10% of the profits are going to this you know um this tree planting partner um <clears throat> the numbers are looking good so they but they they're they're nowhere close to like a merge mansion or you know like a ever merge in terms of uh, rpds uh, it's it's still pretty far and they probably have like some you know medium to long term retention problems but um but yeah it's still it's still like good enough numbers for it to scale so there's pro- like the, a large portion of the 8 million is probably just you know marketing uh, firepower uh, over here but all those good points aside you know um you know they they've planted like half a million trees they found a they found a game that actually has some numbers that you know you can push ua money uh, into it and they're giving uh yeah a larger than normal percentage of their profits you know to this thing all these good points aside um i guess i guess my question uh, question to you guys is we have like we have also seen this model in the past but not really like this you know when i was working back at zinga they also used to do live like live like they used to do some events that were uh, charity focused and 100% of revenue attributed to those events would directly go to the charity right um <clears throat> and but then here you have um uh, a game and a company where the purchase motivation for the iap is directly connected to you know this real world impact that you can have and somehow i feel like maybe like like which model is better because i feel like with the trees please model just to play devil's advocate <laughs> a little bit but with the trees please model somehow i feel there could be like a potential identity issue uh, for the game because like you have a game that's all about like creating real world impact but to like to really hit the metrics of a merge mansion or you know an ever merge like you need to be like pretty hardcore about like your free to play mechanics right and where do you kind of keep that balance um and 
I mean, maybe like the, I mean, still half a million trees is not a small number, right? And like different people have, or different entrepreneurs just have like different thresholds for what they would consider as the, as like good impact for their efforts. But, um, but yeah, like which, do you guys agree with this? Like, yeah, I think you're putting your, I think, I think you're putting your finger on something. Um, My suspicion is if you, if you sort of want to view this through a purely utilitarian lens, like what is the, what you, what ultimately matters is the biggest, the biggest impact, the biggest positive impact possible. Uh, I'm going to start sounding like Sam Bankman-Fried, like an effective, <laughs> uh, effective altruist here. But um, I agree with you. The the most if you're if you're asking, okay, this I've seen this approach. This is not the first time I've seen this, and I've yet to see it work in an, at any scale. In fact, actually, I had a, a studio years ago that was actually acquired by a company that was doing this. Uh, ah, interesting. And I didn't, <laughs> that, that's uh, that certainly didn't work. Anyway, um, I think that you're absolutely right. You have to be pretty, especially in mobile, you have to be pretty ruthless. And there is some kind of kernel of, of conflict there. And if you were to look at what's going to have a bigger impact, trying to kind of build a company around this, or just a game that is already at scale doing an event where all the revenue goes to a charitable partner, I suspect that that's going to actually have the bigger impact ultimately. And it, it feels a little bit like, you're sort of trying to have your cake and eat it, right? It's like, oh, we actually would like to make a ton of money uh, and be a successful company, and also, but also feel really good about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of feel like pick a lane and just operate as effectively as you can within that lane. Um, yeah, that's my that's my <clears> feeling. <throat> I don't know how you feel about it, Tammy. Like, do you, do you kind of agree with that identity issue? Uh, or- uh, I do think that there's something to be said about the identity issue. I think I, where my mind went at in terms of, hey, pick a lane and just stick with it, it's more around the economics, like the, the very harsh economics around mobile games right now. Because you do have, uh, you know, you're 30% caught from the platforms, so that already caught your, your revenue substantially, then you're doing user acquisition on top of that. And then on top of that, you're doing, you know, the the donation to the cause that you're supporting so that like really really eats into your margins very very quickly so it makes it incredibly challenging to build a profitable and socially responsible mobile game right i think from like a business perspective a little bit more um zoomed out out of just games i think that there's you know there is a proven track record at least for example in in retail and clothing that is incredibly hard as well where they are trying like there's a few companies that are trying to do something similar like just do good for the planet with like like yeah like and some have failed and some have succeeded like patagonia and like cotopaxi and there's like tentry that they also plant trees right so there's there's a proven model there but the I feel like the the mobile market as it stands just makes it incredibly incredibly hard to be able to think about both at the same time as David said is just profit like profitable game or good for the planet game. I think it's going to be very hard to achieve both. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think it also comes down to the margin profile, right? Because um, outside of the games business, I mean, there's, like I mentioned, like Tom Shoes, where basically their value proposition is you buy a pair of Tom Shoes, and for every pair you buy, uh, there is, you know, one one child in the world who doesn't have shoes who will also get a pair of shoes. And the price of the shoe bakes in the cost for, you know, producing that other pair. But um and that's like a completely different margin profile. And therefore, it's also a model that, you know, maybe works out there. But um, I feel like maybe there's like some inspiration taken from those models, which is kind of being trying to apply, trying to be applied to the trees, please set up. But yeah, I mean, there's a 30% cut, there's like user acquisition costs. And then on top of that, you want to give away like 10%, you know, to charities and stuff. Um and finally, like you can't also get like super hardcore with your free-to-play mechanics because then the game doesn't feel right, <laughs> you know. Uh, so uh, I think like that is a very uh, like a key point about this type of model. Um, you know, it's not a one-to-one, but what we're doing at, at uh, my current company at, at Captain TV, we are kind of have a, a free-to-play model where we do a rev share with content creators, with streamers. Uh, and it's pretty high rev share. Um, the the difference is we are not on mobile, so we are not we don't have kind of that cut and we don't have like crazy acquisition costs either. But the the piece that really stood out to me right now with what you said, Manu, is we see that our players are very, very excited to support the content creator. So in this case, I think that you can find a spot where you can see players be very, very excited and willing to support the cause that the game is supporting and be, you know, be it an excellent way of monetizing and, and you know, reaching like really good monetization levels. Uh, but what we see because of that is that players are very allergic to that traditional mm. pinch of free-to-play games. So they're like extremely happy with, you know, cosmetics, support, like spending on cosmetics and kind of that, you know, just let me play, I'll support the cause, uh, I'll buy cosmetics, don't pinch me. Yeah. And that I, th- I think like that's where there's a potential conflict. Well, I guess we'll have to watch and see how they do, right? Keep an eye on the revenue and stuff like that. So, yeah. But uh, at least, you know, it's for a good cause, even if it doesn't last long. Yep. But uh, speaking of uh, potential conflicts here, we've got uh, Sony versus Microsoft. Uh, the battle for the ages continues uh, here, especially on Sony's side. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Sony just reported uh, their financial results for uh, Q3 of fiscal 2022. And uh, the headline is their performance has been extremely strong. I think their gaming segment saw a 53% year-on-year increase. Um, and that really was driven by both uh, higher hardware sales, and which I think is really because supply constraints have been easing, and then also sales of first-party software, um, notably God of War Ragnarok, which is now at 16 million copies, I believe. Um, PlayStation Plus is uh, relatively stable at about 47 uh, million subscribers. Um, So they're they're doing incredibly well. Um, And this, I think, is contrasted by uh, some of the quite public 
struggles that Microsoft has had recently. Uh, the most no, most notable being the uh, the underwhelming launch of Redfall, which obviously was a first party title uh, from uh, one of Bethesda's internal studios, Arcane. Um, and then, uh, you know, also there was a Phil Spencer has been out on the interview circuit, kind of talking about some of the some of the, the challenges that they that they've had recently. I thought it would be sort of interesting to zoom out a little bit and just talk about the dynamics of this from a, a kind of strategic perspective. Um, I'll tell, I'll give you my my kind of headline analysis of it, and um, then we can kind of dig into you know, what 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 the execution has looked like. So I think you could say, uh, and I'm going to use some some of the um, some of the terminology here. I'm, I'm going to talk about powers, and that's just reference to um, there's a a book by Hamilton Helmer called Seven Powers that I, I think is a really fantastic book on strategy. So if I start if I start talking about powers, that's 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 what I'm kind of referring to. But if you going into this generation, um, you could see the, the 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 heart of Sony's strategic strength has come from kind of several several powers. Um, probably the the principal among which are owned IP and studios. So um, in the case of uh, you know in case of owned IP, you're talking about obviously titles like uh, like the Gear of War franchise, uh, Gears, of, Gears of War, God of War, God of War, God of War, <laughs> God of War franchise, uh, and then you obviously have other things like uh, like Spider Man, Last of Us, and so on, and these studios that have quite you know have established some some pretty amazing pedigrees, you know Naughty Dog, Insomniac, um, Sony, Santa Monica. So they have these real sort of cornered resources and really strong brands in this owned IP. And you know, one thing that Phil Spencer has also talked a lot about um, is the in, in sort of fumbling the F- Xbox One generation. What that's created is, uh, which was really the pivotal, you know, the, the the PS4 Xbox One generation was the the pivotal one, arguably in the in the migration from. Uh, physical media to to digital libraries, and what that has done is created some significant switching costs for the 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 people who own one console or another. Um, and you know that was they were they were that was compounded by the the differences in the hardware install base, right? So they have some some real Sony has some real scale advantages in terms of just the the number of installed uh, you know, their their their, mar- their market share currently in terms of hardware uh, is I think forty five percent relative to about twenty seven percent for Microsoft, so quite quite a significant difference. And I think like if you sort of think about that being the landscape moving into this generation. I think it's sort of you start to understand why Game Pass was such an important move. It was because I, I would think the way I would think about Game Pass is it's sort of a move, a counter positioning move to nullify the the switching cost advantage that Sony had, right? So in other words, okay, we're going to make this library, this big library of of content that you have, less relevant by giving you uh, for a really arguably an unbeatable price this incredible library that. Um, is just there on your console, um, and I think that was a really, yeah, you know, a really, really smart st- sort of strategic move on Microsoft's part. Um, and clearly, their intent was to support that that move with you know this is a very aggressive acquisition uh, uh, strategy that they've had. So you know Bethesda being the one of the biggest ones, and then of course their attempt to buy uh, Activision Blizzard. Um, 
And that, you know, that's really an attempt to sort of level the pay, the playing field on this sort of cornered resource, this owned IP and, and studio advantage that, that, that Sony has historically had. Um, and, I, and so I think what's, what, what seems to me to be going on is it's failing in the execution, right? Um, we've yet to see, so in terms of owned IP, yeah, the big one, uh, the, the big sort of internal first party one, of course, was Halo. There've been a lot of challenges with Halo and at 343, a lot of departures. And I think you know, Halo Infinite was a pretty big disappointment to, to, to a lot of people. And at the same time, these, these acquired studios, um, are yet to show a really, really strong, uh, a strong title that's on the level of, uh, something like, uh, like a god of war, so um, I suppose that's. Uh, well, I would be keen to get your your take on uh, how does this analysis you know resonate with you, and then I guess the more interesting question: what are the moves that Microsoft could potentially take from here to uh, sort of shift the playing field somewhat? I I, I could go first. Um, I mean, I pretty much like agree with your analysis, and you know what you. Uh, when we were kind of discussing this uh, on our Slack channel and you mentioned that like, you know, the smartest business model does not matter if the games don't exist behind it. And I think that is that is so, so true. So, I mean, the, like, great, like, you know, it was a great strategic move to, you know, uh, kick off Game Pass. And I mean, no, no doubt about it. It's a very smart business model move. But players are going to go where the great games are and you need to have the great games first, right? Like that is the core thing to solve for. And honestly, like based on like what you said right now about like these acquired studios not kind of, you know, creating like new games and such or like that, where is that next big new game? Uh, so many parallels to our conversations about, you know, right now about still front-end play Tika and things, you know, it's, it's kind of like the same same issue uh, over there too. Um but yeah, I mean, what it also kind of rem- what it also kind of reminds me of is some of some of the discussion around Netflix's challenges, mm. which was they they um, you know they they sort of at some point became a volume player, um, and arguably one of the things they've been less successful at is creating this sort of HBO uh, the, those sort of flagship style shows that I mean they've obviously had some you know in Squid Game and things like things of that nature, but. I think with these subscription services, volume is is great, but you need that headline. You need the stuff that is the actual reason that people are going to come and stay subscribed. And I think just the execution has been has been lacking. Yeah, I was going to say that you you touched on a good point, David, on on the subscription models. Um, I was, I was actually diving into the Netflix and just like subscription, like TV subscription and and streaming services in general, like how they categorize their catalog. And I think it can very much be applied similarly to, um, game, like games that are trying to go after subscriptions. And, and it's exactly what you were saying is that you need the headliners. Like they have their tier, like, you know, top tier content that is going to, acquire them users why because it's being talked about etc cetera, etc cetera. and then from there you have they have their kind of filler content that it's quality content that you that they have there for you know for you to jump right after you finish that show that you just kind of came in to watch 
there has to be like relevant and similarly kind of like a good overlap of interest of like second tier like filler content and then they have like the back catalog um which in in the gaming space i would say you have like your triple a's you have kind of like all these like smaller indie games that are like very quick to play uh play through etc and then your back catalog is all these ports uh which you see you know microsoft is doing a bunch of ports uh over right now like you look at their roadmap of like quote unquote new games for like 2023 and i think like out of 10 that they announced like half of them are, are remasters or or ports so it's not really new games um and i think yeah yeah there's like this big question mark about what are those headliners that are actually going to be growth growth drivers i mean the other thing that's interesting here is if you the the thing we haven't mentioned yet um is the pc platform uh, which is it's it's slightly ironic that if you look at the history of Microsoft, they have been um, they were extremely successful at leveraging their ownership of the operating system to gain strategic uh, advantage um, in the market broadly. Right? They did this in browsers. They did this in uh, with, with with Office. They were able to to take this 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 ubiquitous platform and, and and really really push it ironically in games you could argue that the the company that has benefited most from from that has been most successful in establishing kind of network effects and and scale on on pc is actually is actually valve um and uh it's 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 also i, I think Notable that the regulatory environment is 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 less much less hospitable today to the kind of and you know this is even I mean, Microsoft was they were obviously very high profile just you know Justice Department lawsuits and stuff around anti competitive practices in the nineties but you know I think it's it's slightly ironic it's worth asking the question I suppose the more interesting thing is uh, worth asking the question obviously Microsoft is a bigger business than. than Sony or Nintendo, right? They're a massive, massive company. They've got huge businesses in in cloud. They've got, you know, obviously now they're they're becoming a big player in AI through their their, their stake in open in, uh, in, in open AI. Um, I think it's worth it's so it's ironic that they that their ownership of the PC platform. The other reason to note this, by the way, is that um, Blizzard, Activision Blizzard, also reported results recently, and they reported that they are currently making more money on PC than they are on console. Yep. which arguably makes the this 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 acquisition <laughs> going through even more valuable to to uh, to Microsoft but i suppose my question is what's the role of pc in all of this and then are there other other levers that microsoft can pull to shore up their their position here um yeah i guess you also shared this article on the slack channel where um it was like a Forbes piece written by somebody, and you know, I think one of his key points was uh, there's a ceiling to this uh, subscriber base. They and both, yes, they've been stagnant for quite. Sony's been stagnant. I think about 45 million subscribers for a couple of years now. The last time we had reports of on Microsoft on Game Pass was January 2022. Yeah, um, and I wonder if that. Doing. I wonder if. PC and you know uh, Microsoft's hold of uh, PC market share across the world is that lever to break that ceiling in like a 10 25x fashion you know like because I mean at the end of the day like like Phil Spencer said on his interview um, on what is it um, 
on this YouTube channel. I forget what it's called. Um, I mean, he said that uh, you know we're not in the business of out consoling any 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 anybody. Right. Uh, it's about like giving access to the best games uh, to all the people in the world, and they can play it with their friends. I mean, I completely butchered the mission statement of, <laughs> of yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know that that's kind of the point. And um, and yeah, I mean, PC of course has like would play like a huge role in that, and they don't really care if it's like you know if you are accessing Game Pass on the Xbox or on a PC or whatever, as long as you access the Game Pass. And um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what you think about that, like in terms of you know like uh, what role PC has to play in the overall like you know longer term Game Pass strategy. But but yeah, I mean, even that doesn't matter. If the games aren't there, so you know, um, still comes back to that point a bit. Yeah, I have. Kind well, of and also, what 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 are the biggest game and the the biggest PC games? Many are they they're owned by Valve and Activision. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I have kind of an interesting perspective on the PC side right, as a as a, as a gamer that uh, uh, doesn't own an Xbox but does own the Game Pass. And was like a big cloud gamer as well and stuff like that. One interesting aspect of the way they handle Game Pass is kind of weird on PC. So like on PC, like a lot of people go to console sometimes because they don't want to deal with having like the high-end PCs or dealing with the PC aspect of like managing stuff. But the game Xbox stuff somewhat comes with Windows, right? So like a lot of people already have access to that stuff. And a lot of people don't even realize if they have a Game Pass from their Xbox, that that also does something for them on their computer and on their phone. A lot of people don't even realize that exists, right? So some of that's like a lot of times just not good marketing on their part. But the other thing is the kind of weird dynamic they have on PC when it comes to uh, treating it like a PC or treating it like console. So on, on the PC side, if you want to play stuff that's uh, a cloud game, it's all on Xbox servers, and they force you to use an Xbox controller. You used to be able to use third-party controllers, like I ironically would use a Stadia controller, but then they started enforcing Xbox controllers only for mm. the thing to play the cloud games on there. So if you wanted to play a game with a keyboard and mouse, you had to actually install the game, so you had to download it. So that kind of took away some of their advantage of like saying, like, hey, I've got a low-end PC, and that's why... like. I, you know, I'm playing on console because my PC is not great. Oh, it'd be great if I could actually play that game on my computer. But like, if I want to play that now, all of a sudden I've got to hook my Xbox controller up to my computer to then be able to play that. So I, th- I feel like they've done a bad job, like taking advantage of the advantages they do have on there. I know they're working towards fixing that uh, to eventually make it so that you can use keyboard and mouse, but they have that whole issue of like, oh no, you're playing on Xbox servers. So then you're like kind of a cheater. And it's, mm-hmm. so it's, they're in this weird middle ground that I think they could fix. And I saw Google make tons of mistakes in this direction with Stadia that I think Microsoft has a unique position to leverage if they could just stop kind of fumbling over themselves to decide, are we a PC company or an Xbox company? And they could compete with Valve because Valve doesn't offer anything on cloud. And there are exclusives and things like that. Like there's an opportunity to make a dent here that they're just kind of missing out on, at least my perspective as like a, as a PC gamer. Somehow I would like take the more like optimistic, uh, you know, long, long view on that and say that they're probably moving in that direction. And yeah, it's just like operational inefficiencies at the moment that's kind of, you know, resulting in all of that. Um, And um, I mean, anyway, like games are, you know, moving to uh, like a a cross cross platform uh, world in general and, you know, 
yeah, it it just doesn't make sense to be like locking you know game access to like a single controller and stuff. Like, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I guess I would still be like pretty optimistic they're moving in that direction. But yeah. A lot of opportunity. I guess we'll see what the future of that stuff is. If cloud even matters, or if it's just can they can they succeed on PC? Can they win on console? I think a lot of question marks over this next year, especially after the the poor execution of games like Redfall and stuff like that, and then Starfield. Who knows when Bethesda delivers that kind of stuff? So, I think it'll it'll be an interesting year, and we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Uh, but deep deep topic, uh, David, and I, I'm sure we'll we'll be touching on it again. Wait, lots, maybe lots more maybe to say I have like one last does. question. Um, sure. Uh, Maybe David, like you thought about this, or even Tammy. But um, do you think, like one of the one of the things that's also kind of going around in the industry is, you know, uh, the deci- the business model decision with Game Pass is, um, it's not going to be the best thing for developers because it completely changes, you know, the economics of it. And I was wondering, like. I mean, we kind of see this play out on the Spotify side of things where, you know, essentially the creators and artists are, you know, marginalized uh, in terms of their, uh, you know, profiting off of their like creative output. Um, do you think, do you do you kind of see like parallels with the Game Pass also or does it work differently over here? Uh, is the, is, are these industry voices, you know, right in, in they saying that, Game Pass is actually bad for <laughs> the gaming industry longer term. It is. It is bad for developers, and like it, uh, it, it's definitely better for developers. A world where Microsoft is unable to acquire Activision Blizzard is a uh, is a much better world for uh, game developers. Hmm. Strong words, <laughs> quickly said. <laughs> but yeah, definitely a, a, an interesting topic as well. Like I, I think a lot of this stuff has a lot of. Uh, evolution still happens. So I think we'll I'll definitely be revisiting this as it sort of develops through the year, especially heading towards, of course, you know, the Christmas season when uh, when games really heat up, of course. But uh, I want to thank everyone for coming today. A lot of great topics, a lot of cool stuff to talk about. And I'm sure lots of topics we'll be revisiting. Uh, but thanks again, everyone, for, for tuning in. I also want to remind everyone quickly about the mailbag. Make sure to shoot us over any feedback, mail, whatever you have, comments, anything funny, whatever, over to podcast at novak.co. And we'll make sure to try and include that in the show here. But uh, thanks, everyone. And especially thanks to you, listener. And we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novik.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novik has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novik.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novik Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novik Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novik.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.